Welcome to part two, and we have with us today, Stacy James. Hey everybody. You know him from the Maya show, Maya Media. Thanks for listening. And uh, today we're delving into Tesla, or actually the background to Tesla. So let's just go back to where we left off. Yeah, part two of the history of electrical engineering leading to Tesla. Yes. But uh, I'm assuming this is a teaser or a segue to the next episode, which will be on um, Tesla's uh, childhood and, and uh, cultivation, right? And, and then the last, and the third and the last will be uh, the Tesla that we know. Is that how we are seeing the progression of this series? Well, no, the way I'm structuring it is uh, we're doing the electrical engineering. Actually, the next episode is going to be a telegraph. And no, no, that's part three of this episode, right? I was thinking the next episode, call it part four, if you like. Yeah, I mean, so yeah, yeah. Uh, since the next edited episode is the next 30 slides on the Telegraph, the next 100 slides, which will break up any way you want, is about Nikola Tesla's childhood up to adulthood and arriving in New York. Mm. Then the final 100 slides is about all the different uh, intrigues, social stuff, financial stuff, industrial stuff that swirls around him and eventuates into the first, second uh, world war, quantum physics, and his essentially his fight to bring people back to sense mm. uh, in the midst of being lampooned defunded and defunded and all that good stuff. Yeah. Ah, we should have started with this so people know what they're in for <laughs> in the beginning. <laughs> Do you remember where we were? Yep. Yeah, yeah. I just uh, left it on the same slide. So we were right here, Ben Franklin. 
right. published his stuff, got all those guys to do the kites, and they all died. <laughs> well, not all of them, but right. a big number of them because they were all... Oh, the kite guys? Yeah. The kite. I mean, the, the kite guys? Yeah, it was a kite geist, exactly. It was a kite geist, for sure. <laughs> so, so, so they uh, uh, knew him? I thought there was just random people doing it. Yeah, it was random people because they had read his uh, suggestion in mm. a um, science magazine or essentially a series of articles that were going around, right, right. published in different publications all over the world. And then he, you know, this precipitated um, people trying to do it and of course they ended up a lot of them ended up dying anybody who was successful died basically no i see because <laughs> they were holding the kite yeah <laughs> oops not very clever yeah with a, a conductive metal um attached yeah but you, you don't need to understand the uh, nature of electricity to realize to realize you to re hish <laughs> to, I can't talk. Yeah, it's no problem when you're talking because it's two channels, right? But uh, okay. <laughs> uh, to realize uh, <laughs> the mortality of that, I mean, lightning as well. I, again, I sort of question the uh, ubiquitous understanding of all these things yeah, on the yeah. basis of metaphysics. I don't think they did understand what the hell they were dealing with. No. And you know, it's pretty clear. I mean, if you're going to try and prove that. Um, lightning bolts are electricity, then you pretty much don't know that it's electricity. Mm. You know, you have to prove it. So I think that um, we're dealing with a fairly archaic <laughs> reality. I'm assuming they saw manifestations of electricity in small scale, reminding yeah, them well, of reminding them of well, lightning. We went through all that. They were, we did the static electricity. I mean, that's what this is, the yeah. Ben Franklin's electrostatic generator. That's what that device is. So they were playing with it. Remember all those guys going around electrocuting people? Mm, right. Yeah. So they would yeah. see the, oh, it's just a small lightning. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Or, well, this is what brought forward the idea that maybe that's electricity as well and wanted to prove it and came up with a, mm. uh, an experiment to prove it. And then people tried it and died. And then he upgraded the experiment to include a lightning rod. Okay. So ready to move on? Okay. So it was on May 10th, uh, 1752, that Thomas Francois de Lebald of France, obviously, mm -hmm. um, properly conducted the experiment. And uh, the image in the background is a woodcut of that. This is just a portion of the woodcut. The rest of it, of course, is a, is a large antenna that goes into the sky. And then um, down at the bottom of that box are Leyden jars and the, the lightning rods there to capture the electricity. Now, this is Ben Franklin's original lightning rod. Wow. As you can see, the lightning struck it, pretty much melted it and caught it. <laughs> yeah. I can't see how safe you would be with that <laughs> rod. But, yeah, uh, and as we were saying just before, I don't think these guys knew. I mean, you have, uh, you sort of expressed this idea that they all knew what the heck this stuff was. I don't think they did. I think they didn't know. No, I, I don't know who you're talking about. These kite guys? Yeah, the kite. The kite guys who did the kite experiments. Yeah, I don't know anything about them. Why would I think they knew what they were doing? I don't even well, know. Well, you were saying that it's are. pretty obvious that uh, lightning is electricity. No, it's pretty obvious that Benjamin Franklin, if he gave them a conductor, no, not a conductor, uh, what did he call the invention? 
What, the lightning rod? Yeah, the lightning rod. Then, uh, obviously, he could have done it because uh, he knew the dangers of it. He know, knew how to get around it. Well, a lightning rod is basically the same as a Leyden jar. So it's not as though he didn't understand it. It's just that he didn't know how great of an electrical charge a, an actual lightning strike would be. Mm. Which is why in his original suggestion for the experiment, he never included a lightning rod. It was only after people started dying and reports of all these deaths yeah. Um, occurred that he, he amended his original experiment. Uh, oh, so he did suggest people should go out and do it? Yeah. Without giving them a lightning rod? Well, he didn't even know that they would die. Right, right, right. So, yeah. yeah, then he probably didn't do it himself. No, that's my point. Yeah. <laughs> he didn't. And yet he's accredited uh, with doing it. And yet the first people who did do it, who proved his theory, died for it. Mm. Typical. Huh? I mean, if you were successful, if you were successful in the experiment, then he take the credit. Essentially, you died. Yeah, yeah. So it's a win-win <laughs> for him. Yeah, we're talking about hard science here. <laughs> mm. So, um, so this is the first person who did it according to the upgraded version, which was the use of the lightning rod, and that's a French Thomas Francois Delebald. I'm sure I screwed that one up too. So mm. he used a 40-foot tall iron rod rather than a kite. And um, that was successful. And that was uh, June 15th, 1752, that Ben Franklin, after Jean-Thomas-Francois uh, Thériard, is accredited with doing the experiment himself. So it was basically a month later, a month and a bit later, mm. same year that mm. uh, Ben Franklin. But I doubt that report, and a lot of people do, just because it was reported never by him personally. He never said he did it. And the person who did reported on it something like 25 years later. So, right. Just another crafting of an archetypical moment for somebody that needed to have his um, reputation bolstered because mm -hmm. of the uh, grand experiment of the United States. Okay. Next. Speaking of French people, Jean Antoine Nollet. Nollet was French. He was a cleric, and he abandoned his career as a cleric as soon as he came across electricity. And uh, he did a couple of things. So we can go to the next slide. Okay. He did this experiment called the Hanging Boy. Do you remember Gerlach? He went around um, electrocuting people. Yeah. Well, this Nollet came up with a slightly different version, and he essentially suspended a young man using these silk cords. And then he built up the static electricity in the child and then discharged it by having him touch objects and getting them to move away from his body. Or he would uh, then touch somebody nearby and they would get electrically shocked. But the interesting thing was that is that he didn't use a Leyden jar. He used – well, he did use a Leyden jar, but he demonstrated that electricity could be built up inside of a human body without it impacting the body, mm. which is very interesting. So now um, – wait a minute. When was this? This is in the 1700s. Yeah, but when? Because in the 1700s, another guy was roaming around called Mesmer. And Mesmer connected the human, um, you know, the life force to magnetism mm -hmm. and electricity. Mm -hmm. uh, so I'm just wondering if this was before or after Mesmer. I'm going to say before, mm. just because of what's coming. Okay. Mm -hmm. Then it was a feat. It was. 
So another thing that he did that was very interesting, and this is probably the most entertaining of all the experiments. Remember we talked about how the Gerlach, he he discharged into 20 people at once? Yeah. Well, this guy gathered up 20 or 200 monks into a circle uh, that was a mile in circumference, Mm -hmm. and he attached them all with 25-foot strands of wire. Why monks? Uh, Because he was a cleric himself. Oh, okay. See, okay. he was a cleric. He was a French <laughs> he cleric. He did what electrocute. So he had... Science electrocuting monks. Well, he, these were the people he was hanging out with. These are the people around him. Right. They were helping him. So you take who's around you. So he had 200 French monks, put them in a circle. Yeah. Obviously, they're disciplined, right? So he could uh, tell them what to do and they would do it. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then he discharged a battery of Leyden jars into them. And what he observed is that each monk jumped from the shock at roughly the same moment. Mm. And from that, he deduced that the speed of electricity, which wasn't even really called electricity that much back then, was instantaneous or could be conveyed at any point in a closed circuit. So here we have the beginning of circuitry, mm. which I find very interesting. But nobody was dying from these experiments so far. No, we're just talking about Leyden, Leyden jars. Except, this, except the lightning boys. Yeah, the lightning, the, 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 what do we call it? The kite geist. Kite geist, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's a good one. I like yeah. that. Yeah, good. Okay. <laughs> um, but anyway, this is important because it's the beginning of circuitry, you know. And, and I mean, circuits. You know, people think of circuits inside their computer. The origin of the circuit is literally two hundred monks in a mile long circle. Right, human circuits. Yeah, yeah. I think that's interesting. Cool. So Luigi Galvani is next. Ah, uh, galvanizing. That's where that expression comes from. Uh-huh. So he was an Italian physician, obviously a biologist and a philosopher. And so what he discovered is that the limbs of dead animals on the dissection table would jump and twist when he touched them with conductive metals. Yeah. He actually didn't connect the two. He yeah, he's fe- featuring heavily in the, f- in the Frankenstein series. Well, of course. Or Netflix. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. So... That is Frankenstein. That's the image of Frankenstein in the background there. Right. But it's not that, of course. I think it's the first series who has um, written him into them. Mary Shelley, too. Okay. Galvani is the origin of all of that. Yeah. He discovered that the body, the limbs, jumped when he he touched them with a conductive metal. Mm. And he discovered that whenever there was lightning storm, that the uh, dead limbs would jump around on their own without any contact with any metal whatsoever. So galvanism. That, that's why Frankenstein was conceived in uh, lightning storm. Right. So mm. galvanism was a birth of Frankenstein. Mm. The notion that electricity is the animating force of consciousness in the body. Well, if they had said vitality, they would be a closer, but what else? Yeah. Does it matter? Yeah, it's it's a difference. Vitality, consciousness, and matter is the three distinct energies uh, weaving existence. And they are plus, minus, and neutral. Well, I think the most important, because that's really an important thing about the ether Mm. and the idea that the ether is the primordial soup of consciousness. Right. And here we have a direct uh, relationship between, um, you know, hard science and electrical experiment that can be reproduced in the laboratory and the nature of consciousness mm. being related to electricity and light and magnetism. I think that's really key. I think people need to uh, to grab onto that and, and take that, that idea forward. Right. And that is what, what the nature of galvanism was. Yes, it was a, uh, 
an experiment and a um, electrical phenomenon. But as you can see, it gave birth to the idea of Frankenstein. So it wasn't just this, you know, the public took that idea. They believed that idea. They thought the ether had a direct connection yeah. to collective conscience mm. or consciousness, period. Mm. Mm. And it wasn't until later that that separation was made to our great dismay, to our collective dismay, really. Right, right. So again, animal electricity, that was actually the term that he came up with. Galvani coined the term animal electricity to describe this animating electrical force. So that's what probably why we say animated then. Yes, exactly. Uh, yeah, and Galvani also believed that electricity was a fluid that carried to the muscles by the nerves. So it was dubbed galvanism, and that took over uh, public consciousness for quite a while. Yeah. Alessandro Volta obviously took a great interest in him, uh, did a lot of repeating of Galvani's experiments, but he ultimately disagreed and believed that uh, it was the metal itself because Galvani didn't really put that connection together. The idea that this conductive metal. It's funny. From Galvani, we get galvanize, and from Volta, we get volts. Yeah, exactly. And uh, one is very engineering oriented, the other one more organic. Exactly. Exactly. So he disbelieved it. Like Volta believed that electricity was the actual issue, it wasn't a fluid. Um, he believed that the metal itself uh, was the responsible for the phenomenon, not the fluid in the nerves. Mm. So that was that was a big difference. And it's really, I think, the reason that um, electrical engineering carried forward, it wasn't because uh, Volta showed up. It was because he disbelieved and decided to question mm. uh, the conclusions that Galvani came up with. And the fluids are obviously conductors for that electricity. It is. It's conductive. Absolutely it is. Yeah. So... Next. So we go Alessandro Volta and electric fire. So this goes back a little bit to your um, dissertation on the origin of ether from a metaphysical perspective. Yeah. He's an Italian physicist and chemist. Mm -hmm. yeah, he discovered that by sandwiching different pieces of conductive metal together with an acidic or alkaline fluid between them. So in his case, he used lemon or salt water. I wonder, uh, if, I wonder if he was an alchemist. He certainly has the skill to 1745 to 1827. No, he's Italian. He's probably not then. I don't know. I should look into that. Yeah. Well, I think he probably was. I mean, if he was a chemist at all. Yeah. And he was in Italy. And he was obviously coming up with the saline solution, the alkaline fluid that is needed. He had some understanding that, uh, especially with the salt water or lemon water, why would he pick those two if he didn't mm. have some sort of, um, you know, chemical understanding? So Experimental experience. Yeah, experimental perhaps. Um, but he had a lot of other things that he did. He went, he moved fast, let's just say. Mm. So I don't think he was encumbered by too much trial and error. The but, way. but acid and alkaline, it's it, it, what, what these guys are doing. They're finding different kinds of polarities. Uh, we have, uh, you know, acid and alkaline is, in esoteric terms, it's earth and uh, air. Acid is air, alkaline is earth. And uh, it's the same with fire and water. That's sweet and salt. Mm. Uh, bitter obviously is uh, base is uh, earth is alkaline okay and uh, acid is also the same as um, sour mm. 
in terms of taste. So they're just finding polarities, and they, that's important if they want to understand electricity and magnetism and these things. It, you can do it in sound, you can do it in anything, because it's vibrations, right? That, that's why it's the same principle manifesting all over, just in different ways. It's just different frequencies, uh, different amplitude, different curve forms, all these facets that uh, vibrations has, yeah, that's right. which is why Tesla said himself, I may be, be ruining this uh, citation, but uh, I think he says, if you want to understand, uh, is it the mystery of the universe, you say, then think in terms of numbers, frequencies, and vibrations. No, you got it. That was it. That was it. Okay. I was, yeah, I was going to give you a chance just to see. I would correct if you were wrong, but that's exactly what he said. Yep. Cool that you knew. Yep. Okay, let's move on. So, uh, should we go to the next slide, or do you want to muse more around uh, Alessandro Volta? Well, I think it's interesting to note that um, doing this, right, produced a continuous electrical flame. And this completely changes electrical engineering from static bursts uh, where you can only test electrical current in a single burst to now we can continuously mm. test it on the basis of having a continuous current. This is massive change. Mm. And, um, and so that's why it's electric fire really, because it's a continuous. This is uh, the wet dream of engineers and stuff. <laughs> exactly. This is the way electricians dream. and everyone, because he's really allowing for more practical usage here. Exactly. Exactly. And that is the point of this slide. Mm. Okay. Next. So when he developed it, obviously showed around, but the current flow was the main thing. So he didn't just produce uh, an electrostatic condition, but also a current flow. And obviously the battery, therefore, became a simple and reliable source of electrical current that, as you pointed out, is the wet dream. I think you will later explain deeper the difference of uh, these current flows, right? Because that was a huge contest between... Tesla and Edison, right? Well, direct current and alternating current are completely different. Too. Exactly. So will you explain that later? Or if not, we'll take it now. Not in this one, but in the next uh, series, yes. Okay, okay. In the next 100 slides. But in this case, we... So then we'll get back to that. Yeah, we'll get back to that eventually. Yeah. Volta's battery. What can you say about that? Yeah, I was just waiting for your, I was just waiting for your, uh, for your bill. Uh, but, okay, you're going to talk about that in the next slide? Uh, no, I just think we... Because it says something about it here. Well, the battery became obviously a more reliable source of electrical current, allowing scientists to study electricity in a far more versatile and accessible fashion. And we did just say that a couple times over. So. Right, okay. Yeah. This is important to note here, that even though there were all these amazing things that they were doing, they still had no bloody idea what the hell they were dealing with. <laughs> and, you know, these... Breakthroughs that were facilitated by the battery were great, but one of the main things that comes out of this is the discovery of telluric currents mm -hmm. and the Earth battery, which we'll get to in later slides. But I inserted it here because it's really tantamount to what Tesla ended up thinking about. Like, again, we think that Tesla, or a lot of people think Tesla, just came up with this idea of uh, wireless free electricity that could be endlessly distributed without any real source of energy. It's typically labeled free energy. Right. Mm. Which then, you know, the uh, orthodox um, cow eyed 
nincompoops who don't even <laughs> look up the definition of the three laws of thermodynamics. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I mean, come on. These people learn it in university, but they actually don't understand the premise no. behind the first three laws of thermodynamics. And we'll get into that. Okay. But anyway, so the idea is here that we have the first battery. And again, Tesla didn't come out of nowhere. So... You know, these are the things that he learned early on in his engineering uh, education. Mm. So Thomas Young comes along, 1773 to 1829. We're starting to inch towards the 19th century. And uh, he was a British polymath who made notable contributions in all kinds of fields, including what he's most famous for, which is Egyptology. Um, He did contribute a number of original innovations in Egyptology, particularly around the uh, Rosetta Stone. Look at this. He's interested in uh, musical harmony, mm-hmm. Egyptology, language, mm-hmm. energy. <laughs> uh, all those things are Pythagorean subjects. There you go. Because all those things are weaved together. Thomas Young, right. I should look more into his life yeah, too. I, think so. uh, I see he's yeah. involved in the Rosetta Stone. Yeah, exactly. He was all over the map. Quite a genius. So in a way, we have somebody here who's responsible for dripping out some of the understanding that we have of these uh, primordial civilizations. I call them primordial because I do believe at this point that that the uh, pyramids are, you know, pre-Diluvian. I don't have evidence for Thomas Jung being esoteric, but when I uh, look at his uh, fields, uh, I would be surprised mm-hmm. if not. Yeah. Uh, but um, uh, it says he launched the wave theory of light, so this man's contribution is huge. Well, theory, right? So we have to uh, explain what a theory is, and that is essentially in the academic field, a theory is a proven thing, mm. right? It's something that's proven. Even though it's a theory, it, it, it gains the label of theory. It's to explain the known facts. That's right. what it is. Right. Whereas a hypothesis is a speculation about known facts. Exactly. Because we've seen the wave theory being developed earlier, but... Yeah, he's accredited with officially establishing the the repeatable experimental experimental yeah. proofs that mm. demonstrate that you know. Okay, so so people had hypotheses about uh, the wave theory of light before him, but yeah, now, we saw that with Isaac Newton. We saw that yeah, with yeah. Um, you know Copernicus. Even we saw that with uh, um, uh, many 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 people. Mm. Um, I just hand picked a few people that we could focus in on. If I was going to do the full. History of electrical of engineering, I'd probably have to do yeah. you know two or three thousand slides. <laughs> but uh, tell us this: Will Keeley pop up? Not in this one. Oh, okay. But he will in the in the next ones. Yeah. Okay. It's more the legacy of Tesla than it is the uh, right. the contemporary. Although he did know him, I know you're right about that. And they both, you know, their meeting point was actually Keeley. I think was even older than Tesla, wasn't he? Um, that I, I don't, I don't remember off the top of my head, but I do know this. They both had readings from Edgar Casey, right? And both of those readings have disappeared out of the archives. Ah. Of, uh, of course, uh-huh. of course. Uh-huh. Yeah. So to provide an advance upon the demonstrated, um, uh, the drawings, right? That that Newton left behind of of wave theory, Young proved it. He showed that uh, he did the two-slit experiment using two screens and two slits. And he, it's demonstrated here in a GIF that is a moving GIF. It's not an optical illusion. Yeah. 
<laughs> so Jung observed right, it. Would be yeah. So he observed it, right? Quite a complex one with yeah, exactly. two different effects. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, it's it's just kind of like suppositions that come out of factual experiments. And, you know, the thing in the background, which looks like a, sort of a color board, uh-huh. is actually hand drawings, his hand drawings of the different effects that he found wow. that came out of the two split uh, slit experiments so that people could have a visual reference for reproducing his experiments. Right. So that's beautiful stuff. That's 1802. Okay. Then we get into practical applications here. So Sir Francis Reynolds was an English scientist and inventor and arguably the first real electrical engineer. He was knighted for creating the first working electric telegraph mm-hmm. over a substantial distance. So in 1816, he laid an eight-mile length of wire between uh, wooden frames in his mom's backyard, <laughs> basically mm-hmm. where he did all of the experiments. So her backyard was obviously gigantic. And uh, he sent pulses using electrostatic generators along the wires. And he found that the signal traveled, obviously fast. But he still believed that the speed was finite of light, by the way, Mm. electricity. So he had that supposition. But that's a hand drawing of the um, uh, mechanism in a shorter capacity that he demonstrated later on to the British Navy. So so, uh, thanks to him, we got the first telegraph. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, there's there's so many people who contributed to the telegraph, but he's the first one to really put it in working order and demonstrate it in front of a, a large group of people. Yeah. Mm. And, well, we can go to the next slide. Yeah. So it's kind of interesting with him because, as I mentioned, he demonstrated this device, and this is a drawing, right, of the uh, subterranean electric telegraph that was built by him in 1816, a little later. So he prognosticated the electric age and many of its key contributions, including uh, mass near instantaneous communication. So he wrote that electricity may be compelled, or do you want to read this? Because you have such a great voice. Yeah, it's hard for me to read from here, but uh, let's see. Okay. Uh, where's the quote? No, okay. Electricity may be compelled to travel many hundreds of miles beneath our feet and be productive of much public and private benefit. Let us have electrical conversations. No, what is this? Conversazione offices communicating with each other all over the kingdom. So they <laughs> propose to call it a conversazione office <laughs> right which ended up becoming the telegraph right, office right. but uh, ronald's telegraph system was presented to sir john barrow secretary of the admiralty in 1816 and he's notorious of course for dismissing it and he quoted it as wholly unnecessary <laughs> yeah i mean we had uh, what did they call it the pony Express. Pony Express. Yeah. That was in the United States more mm. than in Europe. They called it, that was actual company called Pony Express. And it didn't cover all the United States. It was more of a Western. And, and they had, of course, Italians had uh, well-tested high-tech uh, messenger doves. Messenger dogs, carrier doves, pigeons. not dogs. Oh. P- pigeon. Uh, yeah, pigeon is uh, the English word, not dog. Right. Yes. Yeah. Carrier pigeons, yes, of course. And that factors in later when we get into... Um, the second part of the series and we talk about the uh, rise of the Rothschilds and how their financing model and banking model influences um, electrical engineering around the time of Tesla. Cool. 
Yeah. So Hans Christian Ostad, he's a Danish, well known. Yeah. Danish. Yeah, well known. Yep. So this is one of your well known guys. Do you know much about him? No, I, I actually no, don't okay. know, know this guy that much. I know Tico Braha, of course. Uh huh. Well, the thing that he really, in terms of electrical engineering, of course, many of these guys did many other things. But one of the things that he contributed was the idea there's a direct relationship between electricity and magnetism, which really wasn't known at that point. Really? He also showed, yeah, well, they knew, but there wasn't a lot of apparatus for But he confirmed it. He confirmed it. He confirmed it. He mm. confirmed it by accident, uh. essentially. Um, by playing around with uh, volt um, voltaic batteries and then noticing his compass was jumping around. Right. So he, what's interesting about that is that that happened multiple times with multiple people, Faraday being another one of them. Yeah. But Faraday's question was a little different than Orsted's. Orsted said, okay, well, there's a connection, direct connection between magnetism and electricity, whereas Faraday said, wait a minute, what's the medium in between that allows this action at a distance? Mm. And it, two totally different questions have very profound implications in terms of electrical engineering. So he showed that uh, an electric current produced a um, circular magnetic field as it flowed through a wire. So for this and other discoveries, you know, he was awarded medals and accolades and sort of got in with the whole academia uh, infrastructure and became right think. All the Danes are insulted now because I didn't know him. <laughs> So, André-Marie Ampère, well-known. Ah, that's where Ampère comes from. That's right. The term. Yeah. So, he was aware of um, Orst's uh, discovery. And so, he put together – what he showed, essentially, is that if you have parallel wires, one carrying an electrical current in the same direction, and they will repel one another. And this gets into the nature of magnetism and how – positively charged and negatively charged um, things attract each other. Whereas if it's positive or positive, that's why magnets push away from each other. Mm. And, and on Co the other side, addition and cohesion. That's right. So he was really the one to advance that element of electricity, this electromagnetic molecule. So he thought it was uh, a molecule. Yeah. He thought it was a molecule. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that serves a component of electricity and magnetism. Mm -hmm. Electron, okay. Next. Carl Frederick Gauss. He's a unit of measure as well, but lesser known to the common person. Uh, German scientist and mathematician, often referred to as the greatest mathematician since antiquity. Mm. Why? Um it has to do with geometry. So this is where we were talking earlier about Euclidean geometry. Mm. And then this, this transition to non-Euclidean geometry. It's essentially the Euclidean geometry in, in a nutshell is two-dimensional. It persists from 300 BC right up to essentially Carl Frederick Gauss. And until that, um, the idea was that uh, he would take a geometry that continued lines into infinity. Mm. And this changed geometry and mathematics completely. So really what you get is a, is a, uh, a quantum leap yeah. from a um, pretty much a 2000 year old 
stagnation from a close to an open system. <laughs> exactly, exactly. A multi-dimensional world. Yeah, and that's really why. Whenever the eternity is involved, we're talking <laughs> abundance. Exactly, exactly, and the, the difference between a closed system and an open-ended system, and this is, seems to be the problem that people have around this idea of free energy or um, whatever. It gets lumped in with perpetual motion, Unlimited. which is obviously a completely different thing, um, and is governed. Well, I wouldn't say it's completely different. Well, it is if you're how, if you're how, dealing how with how complete do you want it? Well, okay, here's a completely different thing. You have kinetic versus. Uh, fluid dynamics, right? So yeah. kinetic is something that is mechanical in nature. Yes, yes, but that, that's just two uh, different... It has moving parts. No, no, that's just two different areas of manifestation of the same principle. You can even find it in music. No, what I'm trying to say here is that... Is that the, and in moth, which is numbered cells. But what I'm saying is that the perpetual motion machine is limited mm. to the laws of thermodynamics that are governed here on this planet. Whereas... Yeah, if it's perpetual... If it's truly perpetual, and by the way, a Norwegian uh, brilliant, he's like a Da Vinci. He's been compared to Da Vinci too. I wanted to interview him, but his his English is too poor. It was pretty sad. Mm. He's an artist, but he's also an inventor and a lot of stuff. He made a perpetual motion machine. It's been even on CNN and everything. Mm. And the thing is, it does break with the mainstream uh, paradigm of physics because... Nothing should come from anything, right? So how can you truly have a perpetual motion machine? That is the same principle as free energy. It's perpetual. It's no. eternal, right? No, no. This is the problem I have with the terminology, and this is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. If it's perpetual motion, it has an open-ended fuel source. Whereas if it is not like if it's if it's something that doesn't work but is promoted as as perpetual motion, you know this has been tried thousands of times. Well, if it doesn't work, it's not perpetual motion. What are you talking? It's about? not an open-ended fuel source. And that's my point. I want to change the terminology. Is really what I'm trying to get at. No, look, look. If something is perpetual in motion, forget about those things that claim they are but ain't <laughs> or are close to. Okay, because that's not the same thing. Uh, you can be close to being pregnant. It's still not the same thing. <laughs> so so if it's truly perpetual motion, well, then you have to look into what is it that this guy has done. You don't know what he's done. How do you know that exactly. his... Yeah, how, so how do you know that his fuel isn't uh, unlimited? That's what I'm saying. It is unlimited. Yeah, it is. So perpetual motion and free energy is connected. They're the same thing. Uh, uh, they're different. That's exactly what I'm saying. They're exactly the same thing. No, you said it was completely different. I would say it's different, no, but it's no, similar. No, 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 no. You misunderstood me. You misunderstood me. What I was saying was mm -hmm. that we're probably arguing about the same thing, even though we're okay. thinking that we're not talking about the same thing. I'm saying that we'll here in Carl Friedrich Gauss, we have a, a, a quantum leap in consciousness from the perspective of mathematical geometry, mm -hmm. from a closed system to an open-ended system. Yeah. And this is the problem I have with people who discredit free energy as newfangled perpetual motion bullshit, right? Because they automatically assume that that stuff is discredited. Oh. What they don't seem to understand is that we're talking about open-ended fuel sources. Yeah. 
that's that's what I'm saying. Because uh, it's perpetual motion. Uh, there's been many verified perpetual motion inventions. It's just a myth that that's debunked. We're living on a perpetual motion machine. Yeah, there are some inventions that are debunked because they're not really perpetual motion. Of course, if you yes, want, yes. oh, this is like hard to attain this thing, whatever it is. Of course, a million people will try, and of course, most of them will fail. But you only need one white crow to prove that not all crows are black, right? Mm -hmm. And the same here in free energy. We we also have, of course, many failed free energy claims. Of course. Yeah. Uh, but that doesn't mean that <laughs> everything is failed. And the same with perpetual motion machine. So I want to, uh, what you say in English, uh, make a yeah, make a plug for that. Yeah, well, I just want to change the terminology because suddenly yeah. something becomes so much more uh, plausible when you change, when you go from a oh, perpetual motion machine, which comes with all this historical baggage, yeah. uh, you know, whatever, and you, you, you open up your mind to the idea of open-ended fuel source. Well, what does that mean? Mm -hmm. Right? Suddenly mm -hmm. becomes a, what do you mean? You go from a closed system to an open-ended system. Yep. And that's what happened with Carl Frederick Geis as well. He took... Euclidean geometry turned it into non-Euclidean Euclidean geometry, which is essentially three-dimensional lines that go into the go into an infinite in the directions, and it changes the mathematics. Mm. Changes the mathematics completely. You're no longer in a closed system, and this is a major turning point. And it's a turning point in geometry. But we need the reason I made this this slide is to demonstrate that we need a transition yeah. from. Well, we need it. It's the same thing. We're getting into it here. This is a... Uh, but but you, let me just comment that because people need to understand that uh, mathematics is geometry. Exactly. It's the same thing. Exactly. It's just two different areas of application. So geometry is numbers in space. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's the... Yeah, it's a 3D manifestation of numbers, whereas numbers is the one-dimensional. It's, it's the template of, for example, numbers in space. It's also the template for numbers in time, which is music. And uh, it's also the template for numbers in space and time, which is astronomy, if you like. Mm -hmm. So, every, I mean, everything that moves uh, about and rotates. And, and then we're getting closer and closer to, you know, the higher dimensions and free energy. But anyway, let's go back to this slide. What does that show us or tell us? Well, everything you're saying is just another way of saying what I'm trying to say, which is that we have this quantum leap from a two-dimensional thinking to an infinite three-dimensional thinking right. uh, concept. And it's being uh, demonstrated in uh, drawings, right? The mm. physical representation of the numbers. Yeah. And here you have a stereoscopic uh, or stereographic projection of a three-dimensional, non-Euclidean, Geissian <laughs> um, uh, idea of a dipole on a um, on a plane on a sphere, which mm. is you know has at least six dimensions in it that he didn't realize at first, but he was looking at three dimensions at the time. So, right. I mean, there's a lot of words here, but the basic idea is that. While constructing the first electromagnetical uh, telegraph with uh, Wilm, Wilhelm Weber, uh, Weber, sorry, uh, Geiss um, developed a representation for a unit of magnetism in terms of mass, charge, and time. So that's right? where the term Gaussian comes from, huh? That's right. Yeah. Mm. So this is called Gauss's law, 
And it's a cornerstone of one of Maxwell's four equations, which we'll get into later. Mm. And Maxwell's equations have implications that seem to be overlooked by even the most masterful uh, mathematicians. <laughs> I just don't get how they overlook it. Mm. Uh, anyway, we'll get to it. Yep. Um, yep. You know, which, which forms the basis of, of classical uh, electrodynamics. So William Sturgeon was kind of an out of the blue, on his own, more or less impoverished British man who nevertheless uh, is credited now in posthumously with inventing the first um, electric motor. And this was done with 1825. Wow. Yeah. So he used electromagnetics, electromagnets, which is where you wrap a wire around another piece of metal and you run a current through it which creates a strong magnetic pull at one end of the, of the what, what's a commutator um well a commutator is something that switches the pole back and forth the current all oh, right, right going right. in one direction to the other direction yeah because you also invented that in order to do that that's how you get mechanical motion out of an electric current is using the commutator hmm having the ability to switch the current from one direction to the other is what is what changes yeah, very important. the electromagnetic field yes of course it's it's, it's how we can start using it exactly so even though he was kind of a nobody and he did uh, pack this thing around and show it off to people but he didn't get much credit because he wasn't part of the establishment at that point no wonder uh, he was poor if he had to come up with his own prototype <laughs> exactly based on what they had available back then jeez mhm yeah exactly So now enter Faraday, and he's one of my favorites because he's an in independent. Oh, he's such a genius. He's an independent English scientist, right? Mm. And a great mystic too, by the way. People don't know that. He wrote lots of great philosophy. So these are his hand drawings of uh, metal shavings as they gathered around uh, magnets so that he could visualize for himself what he thought to be this, this medium, this intermediary uh, spatial medium, the ether, right? Mm. Um, so anyway, we can go to the next slide. Okay. Mm -hmm. I mean, I was ready to really give him kudos, but. Well, he, we're continuing with him for a few slides, so. He can kiss his ass later, okay. Yeah, so feel free to gush about him. <laughs> um, <laughs> so one of his most important discoveries uh, occurred while experimenting with voltaic batteries. And I actually told the story earlier. Uh -huh. I mentioned that um, the other guy, I forget his name now, even though we just talked about him. Um, Volta, or no, it wasn't Volta, it was after Volta. But anyway, he saw that uh, the compass was moving as well when he was playing with the voltaic battery. Ampere? Ampere, thank you. Mm. And um, and he drew sparks from the battery and he essentially discovered was magnetism appearing at a distance without magnets. Mm. This is key. By the way, this is a nice picture of him in, in his elderly days. Okay. So as he watched the needle and the compass move wherever he, whenever he produced these sparks from the battery, he asked himself the question, the more important question as it relates to what Tesla understood later on, and of course the ether science, is if the compass is at one end of the table and the sparks producing magnetism are at the other end of the table, what is in between these two points uh. that is causing action at a distance? Now, most of these scientists ask themselves these questions because the ether was an ongoing yep. scientific query. But Faraday concluded there is a structure in space that allows for action at a distance. He called it the ether. But really what he was saying it was is electromagnetism. Mm. 
It's a huge, huge leap forward. Yeah, but because electromagnetism is is just describing uh, the contents of the ether. If ether is the piano, then electromagnetism is starting to discover the tangents on the piano. That's right, the sound. Yeah. I wanted to mention something that um, Eric Dollard goes on and on about, mm-hmm. and that is that Bach, the music of Bach is the mathematical representation of most of this electric, electrical engineering uh, three or four centuries in advance of this. Uh, this, this yeah, probably. You should mention that to... to, to <laughs> you can't she's sabotaging me on purpose yeah it's cute it's a nice it's a nice uh, yeah, it's super editing yeah, I'm going to edit it right away okay so uh, to uh, Joseph Farrell he probably can say a thing or two about it too but it's true because uh, what Bach did that's so special is that he understood the cosmic laws so he applied them in the music mm-hmm. so in the same way Plato did that two different professors had this decoded one in England and one in America mm-hmm. decoded the Plato code so he wrote his stories uh, by a certain structure they call it a musical structure but it's- I was going to add uh, Bach to this I was actually going to start this entire presentation with Bach but I couldn't find enough information to validate the statement that um, that Dollar put out. Oh, well, people lo- even learn it, learn it in music school. But yeah, I guess it's not that popularized because it's... Well, in terms of how it directly matches up with the mathematics of electrical engineering, I couldn't find anything to... Right, uh, right, right. That's specific. Yeah, but my point is just that they are working with the same principles. Yeah. Only in that field. I remember in um, my Rosicrucian studies, they are also big on vibrations. They... Um, uh, applied um, two different, uh, was it music and electricity? Yeah, I think it was mm. that. Electronics and music. Mm. It's about the exact same system they're working with. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when an electronician and, uh, I don't know, sound uh, scientist or something, or maybe even a musician sit down together and, and study the principles of their crafts, they'll see, wow, this is directly applicable. So it would be one of the simplest Maybe maybe mathematics compared to each and every of these manifestation areas is the simplest. But if you're going to di- directly compare two different manifestation areas, then, yeah, I guess electronics and music. And so it should be fairly easy to verify that claim. Yeah, it should be. But, it, uh, you know, I only had a month and I had 100 slides to do. So I, I, I'm going to put it in. If you can give me some links that will actually do that, then I will include it in the next uh, bit of slides because it's a, a thought that just astounds me. If I, if I interview Dollar, I'll ask him, give some yeah, sources. Yeah, please do, because I think that's really so valuable because there's such a, a bridge there mm-hmm. that you can create, um, you know, that speaks to a lot of what you talk about. So if I can satisfact, you know, if I can prove to myself and actually come to my own inborn understanding, because a lot of these slides took me hours and hours and hours to really grasp what mm. was being said so that I could encapsulate it on this. That's what took me a month. Oh, my God. <laughs> I know. We cover a lot, don't we? We cover a lot. I mean, there's a lot. I worked really hard on this for a long time. You can see oh, yeah. it wasn't the fact that I had to produce this thing, you know, the slides of the slides. But I, I wanted to make sure I understood every single step along the way so that I could, because okay. you know, I'm a layman. I'm not an electrical engineer. 
I, I have an appreciation and understanding of theoretical aspects. I think everybody has the capacity for that. But when you... Yeah, and I, I, I think it's an advantage that we are both laymen in this area because then our gibberish around it will be <laughs> comprehensible by the audience. If we were well, to... first of all, it's, 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 it's um, incontrovertible. No scientist who is an expert in these areas can argue with what's being stated in these statements. No, no. I mean, don't talk about the level of, of accuracy. I'm talking about the, the, to communicate the principles mm -hmm. uh, yeah. is simpler when you speak the same language, the populist language, language of the people rather than the obscure, esoteric uh, language of the field. Uh, mm -hmm. Terminology. So this was one of Faraday's major contributions was that he um, he more or less defined the ether as an electromagnetic structure. Right. Moving on. Yep. So I just put this lecture in to just sort of add weight again to Faraday's uh, impact because um, you know he was part of the Royal Institute even though he was a layman. Most of these guys were laymen. I mean, right. they were gentlemen scientists. You know, they had their own money. I wish I had lived in that era. I have to make my own money. But these guys had stipends from their titles. He didn't. He was somebody that came in out of nowhere and built himself up and mm. allowed himself to become part of their world by virtue of his uh, genius. And so what he did is he instituted the Christmas lecture series, which is a series of lectures on single topics. And they covered, you know, everything uh, that he understood and anybody at the time could understand um, regarding uh, chemistry, electricity and all the other disciplines. But what's different about this, and you can see that in this picture by or painting by Alexander Blakely, which is copyright to the Royal Institution, is the common people were there. Mm. These were things that occurred. This is the first time anybody had taken the time out uh, to bring the populace in and demonstrate all these things to them mm. and show them mm. in front of them on bench, on the bench, including children, in order to uh, propagate um, you know, a new renaissance, if you will. Mm. Of uh, of ideas, he understood we needed people uh, on our side. Yeah, you needed you need to start training children in the practical aspects of science from the very earliest age, and bring the family in. You know, mm. this guy was so important, uh, so important, and uh, clearly, clearly a great man. So, uh, because he had theorized that electromagnetic uh, uh, an electromagnetic ether. Now, obviously, long before this, Newton had postulated that gravity um, operated in a vacuum, expanding on Copernicus' basic supposition. But there was something pretty nonsensical about a vacuum, right? Yeah. Um, the idea that there's nothing out there, right? So scientific conflict had broken out a long time ago as to whether or not it was a vacuum or if there was some sort of tangible intermedium. And uh, Faraday's step forward in terms of the ether was, uh, you know, that it's electromagnetic fields in motion. <laughs> you know, an easy way to debunk uh, vacuum, in, as in the notion of nothing. Mm -hmm. uh, if you bring your hands together, you know, like you're clapping them, right? Yeah. We agree there's nothing separating them. Mm -hmm. We agree about that, right? I agree. Yeah. Then you, yeah. Then you just remove your hands a little so that there's space between them. Yep. Now, if you did that in a vacuum, you would obviously see there's still something separating them. That's true. <laughs> right? That, that's how easy it is. Yeah, that is. A, so, a because now you can say, oh, it's air. 
But you can't say that in a vacuum. If you have gloves into a vacuum, you know what I mean? You could easily yes. replicate this. There's still space, yeah. Space, yeah. exactly. Yeah, and that, what's space? Yeah. What's in that space? There's no, there's no air there. Yeah, it's, it, well, the term vacuum in space is proving that there is no vacuum. <laughs> <laughs> Good point. So, so there was an ongoing scientific conflict is the point here. And mm. that, conf- that conflict goes on today. It's still going on. Amazingly, I know. And, and it really so is. So many of these old... Co- and, you know, in some periods of time, a part of, a, like they say, a school, like a taught current takes over. Yep. And it should be organic and coincidental, right? And oh, new stuff. And then now we move a, a paradigm back and forth, like we've seen, for example, for particles and waves. But nowadays... Science is being ruined once and for all because nowadays when people get the upper hand in anything in society, any aspect of society, they become a corrupt power elite that rigs the game and nobody else can come in. Well, it's not about, it's not about science. No. It's about power. Yeah, everything is about power. Well, it is now. And so that, that, that's how we can freeze in an artificial ideology, a notion that is controlling in the institutions. Right. And so there's not any longer free science or, you know, the, the dominating thought because of either experimental uh, causations or even just the zeitgeist. No, everything is now uh, controlled and implemented. And, and that's the death of science because if science doesn't have that dynamic in, within it where people are fighting, Mm-hmm. You know, thesis, antithesis, synthesis. That's how you move something uh, forward. Yeah, well, they're not. They're 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 competing. But when stuff is co- controlled, mm-hmm. yeah, there's no competition or even cooperation. When stuff is controlled and feeded us, that's when the brain drain sets in. Yeah, well, um, there is competition, but it's a competition for money. Yeah. It's not about a competition for ideas based on sound science. It's a competition based on uh, correct opinion. And the competition and need for money, right? Financing apparatus is what's behind that entire... I think one reason why they are coming clean about the UFO phenomenon is that they realize that if we are going to move forward with either the replication of that technology, mm-hmm. granted it is actually non-terrestrial, whatever that means, <laughs> or even if it's from within our own human culture, we're still at a, at a limit as long as the populace is kept too far behind. So I think the speeding up our level of civilization now so that, because you remember, we are producing all the drones that's becoming mathematicians and engineers and physicists, etc. They come from our culture. They're not breeded among the breakaway civilization. And so when they keep science, because science doesn't thrive being done in secret, like in small pockets here and there behind closed doors, like mm-hmm. this is... Uh, Either, you know, Intel, uh, confidential stuff or it's trade secrets, you know, corporate secrets, etc. Then you don't get enough brilliant people. It takes much longer time than if it, it was open in a culture and you had a million busy bees working on it. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. That's part of the reason they're, they're trying to bring us up now. Yeah. And that's what this guy also realized when he brought in the people, right? He knew it would accelerate. Yep. the whole development. So so in a way, the, the snake is biting its tail. We're back to before he brought people in. <laughs> yeah, if you compare <laughs> what level there. Well, were. that is the point. He bucked the system. He bucked the system. That's the, the thing. But I don't think he did it 
in a way that threatened anybody. They just sort of allowed him to do what he wanted to do because it was going to, you know, help them anyway. But anyway, the, the reason for this slide is just to underscore again that here we are, you know, 1791 to 1867. We're still in the same place. Right. We're debating whether or not there's a vacuum or not. Uh, we're, you know, he has bench science to prove that that we have, um, you know, electromagnetic fields in space. Mm-hmm. There isn't an emptiness there. There's a fullness, fullness of this influential phenomena that's based on. Is this the first periodical table? Yes. Yeah, it's important to bring this up. I like uh, Russell's. Do you know Russell's? Uh, it goes in yes, spirals. Yes, I, I've seen that too, but I wanted to use one that was actually done by these two guys. Hmm. Uh, even though it is, I've seen that model. In fact, I think I might have used it, or I did download it, but I don't know if I used it in this presentation. Was the spiral model. The one used in mystery schools is uh, interesting because they are depicting 144 elements. Right. In the, in right. The, and that's the point of this slide is to it's again further proof this electromagnetic field exists in terms of harmonics yeah right so harmonics you know tesla referred to it as an ultra rarefied gas whatever um but dmitry uh mendelev predicted yeah. he was a great, that they would be able man. to they would be able to discover new elements just based on the harmonics that he saw appear on their own yeah when he was uh, developing the first periodic table they're they're really just studying nature, like the mystics, hermetics, alchemists, everyone did before them, and discovering patterns, like they did before mm-hmm. them. And the from the patterns, they calculate that okay, look, if this pattern is going to be completed, this puzzle piece is going to be complete. Stuff must be here. We're missing something here. We're missing something there. And it's not just in the periodic table you can do that. You can do that in all illustrations, categorization, catalogizations of reality. For example, you can do it in the electromagnetic spectrum. Mm-hmm. You, you can understand. Oh, you see here. Just so uh, you can predict in music too. Yep. M- music, you know, the music language, notes, tones, stuff like that, is really just a small section out of the huge electromagnetic scale. It's just a zooming in of one part of it. And the same you can say about the atoms. Well, this is that's the microscopic part of it. Well, that was the point of this slide. Mm. It was really the point of this slide. It was the first thing I was deep into um, into uh, Bach at this point, mm. saying to myself, I need proof. And this was the closest proof I could get um, to Bach's music, but I couldn't make the direct correlation between his compositions and the periodic table. So I right. canceled it out. Okay. But that's for future. That's for the future. Yeah. Bach was also expert in codes, which is cryptography is connected exactly. to this. Exactly. And then we get into cryptology and blockchain technology. Right. So this predictive model that he came up with, um, you know, Mandela. The self, yeah. So there's your spiral version of the uh, periodic table, at least in its beginning point. So we're talking about a fractal sequence here. And this is actually one of the crossovers between the Mayan calendar and um, uh, electromagnetic, uh, sorry, um, uh, electrical engineering. Is this the periodic table and its harmonics? But, but is that is that spiral? Spiral? Is that Russell's? Or is I it... don't know. I, I like I said, I couldn't remember if I used it, but I used one, and this is it. Well, it should say so if you look close um, on the text. Let me check. Stars and uh, this is another one I forgot to credit because I was moving through so fast. 
The entire 10 octave cycle is simply periodic accumulation of the constant of energy into higher power dimensional, which reaches certainly sounds like your guy. <laughs> yeah, I think it is him. Um, mm-hmm. What's his name? Walter Russell? I think that's Maybe. the name. Yeah, well, this is one of the ones I forgot to credit, but I will credit in, in any future version because, like I said, I just finished this yeah, he's a mystic. thing two nights ago. He's a mystic who decoded a lot, too. He's like a, so, he's like that guy who made those U- UFOs, that German dude. What was his name? Uh, yeah. Um, I forget his name at this point. You know who I mean, right? Yeah, I know who you mean. Yeah, I just can't remember his name. But... The idea of this was to say, okay, can I prove all these things and talk to a Tesla from the orthodox record of science, right? Because yeah. I've gone through, you know, all the different yeah. stuff. So can I just create a presentation that will validate every single thing that anybody ever says about Tesla uh, and free energy um, using the orthodox record of scientific uh, mm. history and electrical engineering. And I, and I was capable of doing, there were more, there were a few days there where I was having a few doubts, but that was mostly my, some weak links. Yeah. Some weak links. And then it all came together. Like this popped out of nowhere. I had to go deep into, uh, like, you know, Medvedev just popped out of nowhere from, from, uh, Faraday to. Okay. Okay. Was there was only one place I could find that made the link, but as soon as I saw that link, it all fell into place. As far as like, mm, mm. you know, a bunch of things fell into place as a result of that link, and this all comes from the Orthodox archives. So, this is something that the, the most ardent skeptic cannot. <laughs> I mean, the ideas that we get to later on, they cannot be denied on the basis of the fact that all these things are factual and exist within the Orthodox record of uh, academia. Mm. So it's all there. It's all there. It's just that. Yeah, but you know, the, the problem with things is all there is that everything is just specialization. That's the problem. There's no that is a big problem. multidisciplined yep. approach. That's why. I get into that later. I get into that in another slide. Yeah. Yeah, we're so fragmented, right? So, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And that's on purpose. That's yep. absolutely on yep. purpose. Yeah. Compartmentalization of science. Exactly. You just basically spoke to some of the future slides. Okay. So electromagnetic induction. So in uh, 1831, Michael Faraday again set out to prove that electricity could be generated from magnetism alone. Mm -hmm. This is great. So in one experiment, Faraday made a coil by wrapping a, you know, just basically a a cylinder from a what would today be look look like a look like your 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 toilet paper. (laughs) (laughs) Wrapped a coil around it, took a magnet connected a galvanometer and then moved the magnet back and forth and lo and behold produced a current. Mm. I mean, that is gigantic move forward. I mean, that is free energy in, in that is a, That is a perfect example of what creates the uh, perpetual spin of the earth right there. Mm. So it's the fundamental operating principle of oscillating magnet motors, which I just slide in there because oscillating magnet motors are one of the uh, primary free energy motors or perpetual motion machines. Okay. And the motion is actually the oscillation of the magnetic field itself. So transformers, which are more conventional, inductors, which are absolutely conventional, generators and solenoids. Hmm. So just something I wanted to point out here is that we're still in the age of clocks. 
right? Mm. So it's really important. It took centuries, really, for people to start measuring things, not just in terms of distance and weight and volume, but also in terms of time. Mm. Mm. So time is a dimensional concept that could not develop in a two-dimensional universe under Euclidean geometry. So no, they had, they had space down there. They didn't have time. Exactly. So the introduction of time really comes around this 1791 to 1867 time period, which is so important. As soon as you include time. I mean, they, they had time in a macro scale, like, uh, <laughs> for example, the Mayan calendar we talked about, but not in the micro scale that clocks a lot. Well, they didn't have the Mayan calendar. They weren't playing with it. They they didn't have that. Humans had it. The Mayans didn't have the Mayan calendar? I'm saying we, as in Europeans. Oh, we, Europeans. as in Europeans. Right. Europeans. Well, we had calendars in antiquity, druids and stuff. Sure. And we had astronomical clocks like the one depicted here, which is in Prague. Yeah. It's a beautiful clock. Um, have you been to Prague? Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful city. Yeah, it's gorgeous. Anyway, uh, the importance of this Faraday's law, or what became Faraday's law, was the introduction of time into the measure of things. So, for instance, when something falls from a height, it does not fall at a constant rate. It increases speed over time. So mm. once Newton had introduced the law of motion, the universe became three and then four-dimensional, allowing for time to enter all equations, mm. including that of electricity. So... Faraday determined that if the magnetic field through a loop of wire varies in time, then the electromagnetic field induced in a circuit is proportional to the time rate of change of the magnetic flux linking that circuit. Now, this is when things are going to... You, uh, you can find a description with simpler sentences. I created that one. I created that out of much, oh. more, much more difficult examples. <laughs> it's already dumbed down. <laughs> okay, I It's see. as dumbed as it can get, and it took me a while to understand it myself. But it's, oh, yeah. it doesn't matter. What matters yeah. is that we're talking about a change in the magnetic field. The magnetic field isn't constant. It changes, right? right. It changes, and as a result, you have a circuit, which is – so the, the current, right? The current through the circuit is influenced by that change. Mm. Okay, that's Faraday's law. Mm. Yeah. Torsion fields. Oh, wow. So Heinrich Frederick Emil Lentz, Emil Kristovich Lentz, obviously Russian. Is he Russian? Uh, Kristanovich, sorry. All you Russian listeners out there. Ah, Kristanovich. Uh, he was born and raised in Russia, but he lived in a kind of a Baltic German quarter. Uh, Moscow, yeah, yeah. Which was famous for being Russian. Yeah, Milan sounds more Baltic. Mm -hmm. That was famous, actually. I got into the history of um, Peter the Great for a long time, and one of the things they talk about um, in Moscow was during his upbringing, there was a German quarter, and some of the people that influenced St. Peter, or Peter the Great, sorry, not St. Peter, mm. <laughs> the most, don't want to call that guy a saint, um, uh, were his uh, European influencers. He had a German teacher, and that was from the same quarter of uh, Moscow that this guy's from. Mm. Uh, but that was earlier. But anyway, he was uh, he created a law of electrodynamics, which states that the direction. Damn, he looks like Mark Stavich that I just had on the show. <laughs> he looks like an old version. Father, maybe he's the grand grand grandfather of Mark. <laughs> yeah, so he had a. Sorry, that was a distraction. Yeah. He said, well, no, it's just, it's fine. It's, he's an interesting looking guy. We start getting into these more modern looking imagery because mm. we are coming into a more, what we call modern. Materialist time. Yeah, we're coming into a modern world, right? Where we're taking photographs fairly soon. In fact, Faraday was photographed as we saw earlier. And there so was Medvedev. 
There's another one of Faraday. So we did have photographs at that point. So we are getting into some serious mm -hmm. materialism here. The thing about Emil is that um, he inadvertently understood what a torsion field was without really labeling it as such and without really understanding its implications further down the way. Mm. Uh, essentially, it states that the direction of the electric current, which is in Induced in a conductor by a changing magnetic field, Faraday's law, mm -hmm. is such that the magnetic field created by the induced current opposes the changes in the initial magnetic field. Now we're getting into what is the core concept behind alternating current inside Tesla's landmark um, invention. And it's a torsion field. It's the ability to, this gets into sort of the uh, limits of the uh, commutator and how you can create you can use two different you can use an electromagnetic field as a commutator commutator mm -hmm. uh one of the things about radio and we'll get into later is that the way radio is created is when you switch on and off a powerful electromagnetic field at such a rapid speed it creates a waveform which is radio mm. and the core of tesla's big jump was of course the ac uh, system which used electromagnetic fields as the propulsion itself. Radio waves are some of the safest waves for us to play around with. What we're doing nowadays, we're playing with frequencies that interfere with the organism or biology. That w was not true for radio. Well, radio was pretty high frequency. It was pretty I mean, if they had if they had started, uh, you know, with X-rays, <laughs> started mm -hmm. at that end. I mean, they did yeah. discover eventually what was. Uh, dangerous or not, for example, you know, the higher frequencies, but... Well, they didn't still. invent those things. Those all exist in space. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, we're being bombarded by... Yeah, yeah, but they invent ways to measure it. That's the point. Uh, mm -hmm. yeah. Nothing is... They were able to reproduce... Nothing in the electromagnetic scale is invented, right? That's not... But we, we can manipulate certain certain energy within certain frequencies... That was my point, exactly. Yeah, yeah. 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 But um, uh, which slide number are we on now? Just curiosity. 70. I think this is a good spot because now we're getting into serious concepts that are going to require a lot of... Yeah. Then we get into Joseph Henry, we get yeah. into Samuel Morris, we get into the history of the, um, um, the telegraph line, which is essentially the source of so much more understanding um that it kind of is its own thing okay right um so there's 30 more right yeah and i would say that uh that we're going to do the next 30 slides out of this hundred yeah. that makes perfect sense because it's mostly to deal with the telegraph line right and how the telegraph produced all these inventions and understandings that resulted in this tidal wave of of understanding that resulted in Tesla. Yeah. Now, just just so you know, I'll skip through here and I'll show you what we get to. That's kind of like telaric currents, telaric currents, magnetolytics, Earth, um, the Earth's uh, electromagnetic field. Uh, we get into um, Earth batteries. These are all the patents for the Earth batteries. Right. Uh, we get into uh, the U.S. Patent Office and how it's a screening device for um, for things that aren't fitting with the laws of this, that, and the other thing. Mm. Uh, the patent screening process, how it actually works. This is absolutely true. This is all in the public record. Cool. The laws of thermodynamics, I break them down. Um, yeah, basically, before I break them down, I demonstrate that there are these laws. 
Then we get into academic orthodoxy. Then we get into open-ended fuel sources. Then the telegraph line. Then the transatlantic success. Charles Clerk Maxwell. Maxwell's equations. The whole thing is right, and then it ends up. That's it. Right but, there. That was it. Yeah. So, um, so that's what we could go through, and that would make its own episode. I but think. then we do Lens laws today, right? Since we already did Lens. Sure. We can finish with the last. So, so we can end at Lance Law. But uh, another thing, so that's 100 slides, but that's just one. Uh, you have 300 altogether, right? I have 100, and I have to produce the next 200, which is why uh, I told you that it's going to take me another month to produce the next 100 and another month to produce the final 100 after that, yeah. Because I have 100 slides. It's going to take me at least another month to produce, maybe two months, to produce the next 100 and then the next 100. And I think it's 300 that we need to do right. to cover the stuff that you want to cover. But we will start with Tesla at uh, the next round. Yeah, yeah. We're all in on Tesla after this. Okay. So you, you're going to be pretty busy for a while. Uh, yeah. <laughs> My mistake. <laughs> okay. 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 But we can talk more about this later. Let's move on in the show. Yeah. Let's finish part two. Okay. Do you want to bell it? Yeah. Let's bell it. <laughs> so again, Emil Lenz, he, how do I, again, it's so hard. We're starting to get into, um, into some concepts that are really difficult for myself and, and probably a lot of other people to understand. But essentially what he's demonstrating is that if you have currents that are in opposition or moving in the same direction, they create um, a field that looks like a torsion field the way it's depicted here uh, that wraps around um, space that is the result of opposing uh, polarity. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of a law that he created. But the practical application is like um, magnetic brakes, for instance. Yeah. And, you know, propulsion and alternating currents and AC motors and everything else. So it was a huge, huge uh, component to what became Tesla's invention of alternating current at the time. Because you need something that's in opposition or to create propulsion. Mm -hmm. If you can't have propulsion in a magnetic field without a commutator, because a commutator limits you to a mechanical form of changing the current from positive to negative or back and forth in a circuit – and if you can't remove the commutator and use magnetic fields themselves as the propulsionary um, uh, mode, then we would never have come past the commutator. Mm. And that's what Lenz's law really contributes to electromagnetic engineering. Mm. Yeah. So this will create, uh, 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 not just this, but everything up to now creates a whole new world of industry, basically. It all goes into Tesla's brain mm. is what the point of this entire presentation is. Yeah, he grew up with Is this. that all these things, yeah, he was born into it. Like basically Lenz died, you know, one year before or a couple of years uh, after Tesla was born. Like uh, I think Tesla's seven or eight years old by this point. Mm. And um, I mean, we're talking about, um, you know, something that became very well known became institutionalized in many ways. So there's the positive side of the academic institutionalization of ideas and science uh, is that Tesla was able to absorb all these things and come to them on his own um, through his own curiosity, but then also compare them to something we'll get into about Tesla later, which is the metaphysical library, the sacred library that his father carried in their house. Mm. He um, was a high-ranking Serbian Orthodox priest. A lot of people say he was low-ranking. 
but he was high ranking because he was in quiet maintaining one of the key libraries that they had carried forward. So we're talking about secret societies. Mm. One of the things I want to uh, identify perhaps with you, mm-hmm. if there's enough clues is figure out which uh, branch or which right. doctrine or which school he was from. Yep, yep. Uh, and that would, that would say a lot about what was in the library in his house, because there's no bibliography of the library that Tesla had at his disposal in his father's house. But I know that it was in ancient Greek. It was in ancient uh, Roman and it was in uh, ancient Latin or so ancient Roman. And, um, and that he also was able to, uh, they had different ideas and different um, archives relevant to Egypt. Yeah, just the fact that it was the Orthodox Church opened so many possibilities because they had uh, a higher threshold for, you know, they included a lot of the mystical stuff and the traditional stuff. Uh, They weren't that uh, zealous as the uh, Catholics to purge history. So next slide. So Joseph Henry is the next guy. Yeah, yeah, we'd, uh, if we just go back one, we can see that we ended with Lenz Law, which is really about uh, using magnetic fields for propulsion and braking and all kinds of things that ended up being important to Tesla in the long run. Um, so Joseph Henry is sort of an introduction back into the telegraph, because the telegraph is very important to the to the whole history of electrical engineering, mainly because accidentally it produced all kinds of discoveries which we're going to get into mm-hmm. but one of the uh, key contributors to that beyond samuel morris and other obvious people that some people may know is joseph henry and his he was interesting because he was also the first secretary of the smithsonian institute Uh-oh. which depends exactly <laughs> depends on what your thoughts are about the smithsonian institute i mean obviously there's been some chatter over the last couple of decades about their suppression of um, potential or alleged mm. suppression, let's say. I haven't been able to confirm or, or validate any of those statements myself, but it is something that is talked about among people who, uh, who you know, claim to know that uh, the Smithsonian is responsible for suppressing information about giants, human giants, and other sort of archaeological finds yeah. throughout that tenure, actually. Egypt and stuff. And, and it's, I mean, there's a lot of institutions in the world. Why are all these rumors and accusations specifically aimed at the Smithsonian? Well, the biggest It's so suspicious that it's always pointing to them. My point is, it's not all across the board equal accusations. So I suppose by the logic of uh, no smoke without fire, then uh, there's something there. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, there's a lot of things that uh, have contributed to why that may be, but I'm, cer- I'm certain that there, well, it isn't necessarily suppression as much as um, obfuscation, let's mm. say. Uh, from what I've been able to sort of gather is that, um, you know, you rather than than talking about all the finds and going through the primary research and observations out of the archaeological digs that were happening at the time of the uh, 19th century, um, basically his lifetime. Mm. Um, he, uh, you know, there's there's a lot of stuff that was just excluded from the orthodox academic archive, right? Mm. 
Uh, I forget the guy's name, the one that does the uh, Forbidden Archaeology. He's the one that uh, really chronicles that. Cremo. Yeah, Michael Cremo. Yes, thank you. And there's others, of course. Uh, there's ones that deal specifically in giants and human beings. Yeah, shout out to that. I'm going to interview Klaus uh, Dona. Uh-huh. Klaus is interesting. Art collector. He's been, um, yeah, he is. He's an art collector. I've talked to him quite a few times over the years. Um, we've not developed any kind of close relation or anything, but we've had some conversations because I wanted to include him in um, a series I was doing about legends of a lost civilization, essentially mm. like pre-Diluvian civilizations and ar- archaeological finds. And um, obviously he would be an ideal person to include in that. But in the in the interim, basically in the, seven years that have passed since uh, I got first involved with him or at least started looking at him. I've noticed that he's been involved in a couple of fairly lucrative scams. Right. Uh, you know, in, in regards to artifacts that were claimed to be such and then were sold for large amounts. And, um, you know, his participation helped validate them in some way, but then they turned out to be um, you know, false. But that doesn't mean that everything that he's been dealing with is that way. It's just that he's... Really? So he was involved in the... I mean, how much was he taken advantage of or was he a perpetrator of this scam? I didn't talk to him about it. Mm. I haven't talked to him about it. I just saw it. Disturbing. Uh, from the outside. And, you know, that doesn't discredit his work. It just means that he's, you know, maybe haphazard. Well, it, it discredits that specific work that you're referring to. Exactly. Mm. Yeah, whatever it is that, that that was. I can't remember now. It's been a while. But, um, yeah, and I mean, this is kind of the the world of art and artifacts, right? right? right. There's a, a huge market for that. It's very lucrative if you can validate something or at least have the appearance validation. It can be very lucrative. So someone like him being involved is makes sense in a lot of ways because uh, he would be curious. Mm. You know, to know what these artifacts are, he they would go to him to find out if they match other things. And, you know, he might have accidentally been duped. I don't know. Mm. I don't know. I mean, even the best assessors and evaluators are duped quite often. So it's not like that couldn't be the case. It's just that that occurred. And so it does, obviously... I mean, that's the problem with that whole field. Archaeology is not a hard science, right? Yeah. It's, uh, it's, you know, it's not electrical engineering. You know, mm. you can't go to a, a laboratory and duplicate a, a test there unless it's a very vague test, like a carbon-14 dating right, right. Um, thing, for instance. But that doesn't mean anything. You know, that doesn't mean anything. I mean, there's all kinds of stuff that goes on in the archaeological world that sounds real in the orthodox uh, field and it really isn't so you know everybody's playing that game i didn't mean to call him or pull him apart i'm just saying that uh, that there are the, you know we're in the world that he is working in it's fraught with that kind of thing oh yeah um, and, and so he's bound to get involved accidentally or or by design either way uh, i don't know him well so you know i can't say but i was introduced to him by um Osmanagic, the uh, director of the archaeological dig in Bosnia and the Bosnian Pyramid. So uh, and, what's yeah. your view on him then? Oh, I like him. Or his work, rather. I mean, he's obviously had... Yeah, well, I've had to... Well, I haven't seen it on site, right? So I can't make an assessment. Again, that was sort of me connecting with everybody and getting their, um, you know, their involvement in this project that I was doing. And until I go there and until I see it for myself and until I have third-party independent um, uh, verification of anything that he's putting out. I can't say one thing or another. Mm. All I can say is that I really hope it is. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, that would be cool. And, and and the geometry of it is is spellbinding and does have um, some like if you do the aerial geometry of the location of the various pyramids according to Osmotagich, um it does appear to reflect not only the pyramids in Giza but also the supposed site in um, Sidonia. Sedona. Yeah, exactly, in Mars. So, you know, there's all kinds of possibilities there. I wanted to make a serious investigation of it using the resources of the production for Discovery Channel, but that didn't work out for a number of reasons also. So, here we are okay. with Joseph Henry. Yeah, let's let's return to him. The director of the uh, Secretary of Smithsonian. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, is there anything else to say before we move to the next slide? Well, he we haven't said anything about him. So he was obviously the, the head of the Smithsonian Institute, but he also invented two of the most key components for the telegraph. And one of them, of course, is electromagnets that were powerful enough. So he advanced the whole electromagnetic field. And then he also created um, uh, the mechanical relay, which is a um, device that allows the signal to pass along the the um, the wire, and he taught and in, in essentially um, what do you say uh, advised uh, Samuel Morris and his partner how to use these devices in the telegraph. And later, Vale published a book on this, mm. but he tom- he completely forgot to mention Henry's name. They claimed that was inadvertent and accidental, but it was pretty clear that they didn't want Henry in in, in getting involved in their patenting of the um, the uh, Morris version of the telegraph, which became the most widely used yeah. form. Typical. And so that was typical when when yeah. uh, when a new first you have like contributors to new discoveries in science, and they are usually far removed in the chain from those who actually make applications where they can earn money. Yeah. So so uh, what happens is uh, someone comes in between as practical middleman and then number 3 the third part in the chain is is the money makers who often they're not even scientists. Well, it's just when the money makers well when the money makers come in it becomes a legal battle it becomes yeah. a shoring up of intellectual property it becomes Usually someone gets screwed and that's usually the the idealistic scientists they get screwed. <laughs> Have you ever read uh, Ambrose Bierce's uh, The Devil's Dictionary? Uh, yes, uh, I haven't. Uh, yeah. Well, I have it, but I haven't like completely read it. But I read in it. Yes. Mm-hmm. So the so the so the definition of a lawyer is the master of obfuscation, right? Circumvention of the law. <laughs> <laughs> so once the money gets involved, the lawyers get involved, and then basically people get screwed. That's yeah, just yeah. how it goes. So yeah, the uh, as soon as the lawyers get involved, you know the obfuscators and the circumventors of the law, then yep. everyone gets screwed, or a lot of people get screwed, and that's just how it goes. Yep. And that's really uh, a situation I've been in myself firsthand. So it's not um, it's not a it's not a saying for no reason. <laughs> so the next slide. It's so rare that those who create something are in power of their own creation. That's one of the saving graces of the internet that it has made many people who are creative, like podcasters, like myself. There is a chance to, you know, look at Joe Rogan. 
He has complete creative and commercial control of his own show mm-hmm. still, and it's still the most successful out there. And he doesn't even need the money, but of course, it's a huge moneymaker. Mm-hmm. So it's possible from the very top to the very bottom in some, in certain industries. But these are what the, you see what's going on with the homing situation in America now. I don't know if you know it, but it's like everybody's becoming renters. There's a deliberate Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm, I'm not yeah. going to go into the yeah, details. You'll own nothing and you'll love it. Yeah, you'll yeah, own yeah. nothing and you'll be happy about it. Yeah. The whole great reset is really just the uh, complete complete um, aggregation of all assets into a single yeah. pot for very small people. Exactly. Yeah. So, And when there are new industries, like, for example, cannabis, in Spain and in many countries, America included, mm-hmm. there are more or less a movement towards decentralized, you grow it yourself, cooperations, community productions, like local mm-hmm. stuff, you can make it yourself. And corporations are, of course, eyeballing all these industries where they want to, especially where they have no presence. Well, if you have the money, if you have the money, you have everything, right? Because the law is really about who can pay for the legal process. If you have the most money to pour into the legal process, you win by default. Yeah, and that's what they need to do for some industries if they will take over. For example, they have a huge problem with podcasting now because they have already crushed YouTube, mm-hmm. but podcasting has somehow is still uh, not touched by their tentacles. They cannot use advertisement to crush that industry and take over it. They cannot just yeah. produce a lot of fake podcast, corporate podcast, because nobody's going to listen. It's <laughs> fake, right? Yeah. So what can they do? It's not much, but they're trying to do it by law, just like you say. We can make laws. We can force the podcast companies to start taking down podcasts. We can make them closer to what to our own productions, so that we can. Yeah, stand that, that a whole chance. process has been underway. That whole process has been underway uh, for cryptocurrency now for at least six years. Yeah, and uh, I'm glad you mentioned that because it gives us an excellent opportunity to reveal something's going on now with ODC. ODC is like the YouTube of library, is what they really call it. Anyone you listen to, people that you like. Tell them to go over to library if they're on YouTube because a library just copies everything from YouTube on the root level. And then you have a backup mm. for when you are going to be deleted. In addition, they have Odyssey, which is their outward platform. Mm. And that platform uh, is the most competition to YouTube. They are the ones who can become the new tube, not BitChute, not any <laughs> of the minds. But Odyssey can. And that's why the huge multinational corporation now has, together with American state, is now trying to crush both Odyssey and crypto coins in the same action. So uh, because Odyssey is uh, using cryptocurrency, and so there is uh, an attempt to take down both in one. And so they're on the siege now. It's going to be a court case, and they're going to try to crush them economically, and they they need help. So the minimum thing you should do, folks, if you care either for free podcasting, free information, or if you care for cryptocurrency, free money, is to look at that incident, what this is about. And if you can, support them, of course, but at least make yourself aware of what's going on and spread the word. I've invited Odyssey to my podcast to talk about it, but... 
they haven't uh, mm-hmm. said yes yet, and I I doubt they will because it's so typical when I try to reach out to guests who are not familiar with us. They take one look at us, and they see all the wrong shows, shows in area they have no clue about because we cover six areas, right? So any guest we invite who accidentally takes a look at us, our podcast is going to be scared. They see these cartoonish kind of <laughs> cover icons. That's not good at all because that gives a childish impression. And then they see the, you know, the suggestion of the images or the title and they think it's something completely wild and out there. Well, it is, <laughs> but it is, it is in, in a serious way, but they don't understand that. They don't know that. They know nothing about us. Mm-hmm. And so they get freaked out. Oh, we can't associate ourselves with this because that will somehow. Uh, ruin my reputation cancel me yep yep that's how people think yeah, now, yeah it, you'll get canceled or attacked or whatever in yeah. old days it used to be they didn't care all publicity it is good publicity i don't even care if it's a tabloid kind of gossip media thing i'm going on all publicity is good publicity and uh, oh these people disagree with me even better but maybe i can convert some people to agree with me if i get on no these days you have to go on with just those that are accepted within your narrow cultural circle or whatever, or the tone uh, deciders in your circle, mm-hmm. because they can. Uh, otherwise, yeah, you're you're going to be cancelled, or you're going to be. Well, it's all dispersed. it's all attached to money, right? And if you can't make money, then you are cancelled in the most difficult fashion. It's like a it's a new feudal system through the monetary system. Technocratic. Yeah, not just money. I mean, values too. Um, more than anything, it's about political correctness. Yeah, but that, as soon as, as, of course, but where does that impact you? It impacts you on your money. And yeah. that's what keeps people in line. Those are the golden handcuffs, right? Right. So, so that's, that's really what it boils down to. And the walls are closing in, if you will, um, <laughs> around people uh, in general. It's either fall in line or, or really get out of the mainstream into something that is – and continue going out yeah. into these areas that are, can just continue to be pushed further and further out onto the fringes. Otherwise, what are you going to do? You have to fall in line. So you have to either figure out a way to become invisible within that system yeah. and still operate which is what people are doing when they're preemptively deciding who they're going to spend their time with, who they're not going to spend their time with, who and what they're going to talk about, what they don't want to be around when they're talking about. And how to write about it, which uh, keywords to use, uh, because it's a battle yeah. against the algorithm. Like Cliff I said, in the old days in England, when they were knocking down on the language of people, they invented new words, new ways to express mm-hmm. the same things. And that's kind of what's going on here in the podcast world, too. We're trying to uh, go around the algorithm. So we're becoming very creative with our descriptions. And, all. and the last thing I want to see, say about this, let's return to the topic at hand, is that if there's a guest you want to see mm-hmm. on our show, You have to start nagging them. (laughs) Write them, Mm -hmm. talk to them, mention it on Twitter and social media. Just put a name on the radar. It doesn't matter if... Coerce them. Yeah, it doesn't matter. Everybody's being coerced. Yeah, Yeah, it doesn't matter if they're not coming on after you ask them. That's not the point. The point is making them, one, aware of us. Mm -hmm. Two, making them aware that people, their own uh, people want to see them on. And when they're primed like that, I can send them an invite and then I'll, I always send them examples of a show which is within their field. 
Mm-hmm. You see what I mean? Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm not picking random shows. If it's a political kind of topic guest, I send them examples of my political shows. If it's uh, like philosophical, I do that. If it's historic, I do that. And that's a much easier way because then they recognize names mm-hmm. and subjects that I've already had. And then they feel comfortable and safe. Yeah, right? it's relevant. It's just relevancy. It's all about relevance. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And then I realize, okay, if I go on here, I see other people in my field have done it. So it's probably a good thing. Mm-hmm. If I send them like a UFO thing to a historian, right? They freak out. So, oh, it's so much People don't know how complicated this is, but uh, <laughs> I got that off my chest. Let's remove. Now yeah. it's Samuel Morse. Morse. Yeah. That, that was my attempt for Morse code. <laughs> so Joseph Henry had obviously advised. So as I mentioned, uh, oops, what just happened? Can you still see the... Yep, uh, it's still Samuel Morse. Oh, my screen just moved. I don't know why. did it on its own. Oh. Is it frozen on Morse or? Oh, there it is. Okay, it's back. Yeah. I don't know why it disappeared. So anyway, it came back to me. Mm. I say they had style back in the day. They sure did, didn't they? They really did. Mm. They had style. That steampunk period was, it was a blessing because most, because the only worry they had in terms of health <laughs> was straight out pollution. Yeah. Which is kind of easy to avoid. Well, they had bad water. So I guess that sort of sits with pollution. Which is straight out pollution. Yeah. But today with the technology, we got, we're getting invisible pollution that people can't understand, see, relate to. You know, if we're producing poison and noise in the entire electromagnetic spectrum. Yeah. And uh, it's just killing Earth. So. Well, we can talk about that because there, I mean, it won't be in this episode it'll be in the next one when we talk about uh, the impact of the uh, 1893 um world's fair yeah and tesla's debut of um the ac system yeah and what it propelled what it caused because you know the u.s population i mean i'll just say it now the u.s population at that time uh was 90 percent rural yeah and you know they didn't they didn't live in cities. There wasn't running water. There wasn't electricity. They had gas lamps, whatever. But cities were. And they had wells. No, no, I'm talking about in the cities. Oh, they didn't in the have, cities. Yeah. Uh, they didn't have uh, running water. They didn't have electricity. They had gas lamps. They used coal. So, of course, it was just choked with coal smoke everywhere, right? Mm. Um, so people didn't want to live in the cities as much as, as they could stay away. And then as soon as the electric age began, which is really the age that we're still in our infancy in, and which is what my argument is here. This is what changed everything. And it was actually Tesla's um, debut of this electric uh, system that made it feasible that caused uh, this mass migration into cities. Right. And it really kicked off uh, after the 1893 World's Fair. And that was one of the lasting impacts of that that event. Right. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's move on then. Okay. Yeah, Samuel Morris uh, was... Obvious, you know, he's fairly well known for obvious reasons. Morse code, right? Mm. So prior to his fascination with uh, electrical engineering, he was a painter, and that's kind of the interesting thing. Back in these days, of course, you could still sort of make lateral moves and and reach a peak, you know, at uh, at both levels, um, you know, in both uh, areas. And he was one of them. So he was a good painter, well known. Um, did a lot of paintings of famous people. Uh, but the thing with him was that um, 
he was inspired by some of the lectures that he, you know, attended at Yale and then enlisted, went out and enlisted Joseph Henry to assist him in, in reproducing um, the vast majority of Michael Faraday's and others' um, experiments in America. So these things were being migrated over to the United States so they could do their own innovations. And, you know, with the electromagnetic, re uh, electromagnetic relay from Henry, uh, he was able to send a signal across long-distance telegraph lines, and that changed the game. And that's why he was more or less credited with uh, creating the telegraph. Even wow. though it was probably at least 100, 100 people. A goddamn artist. He had nothing to do with this thing. What a clever yeah. businessman. Yeah. And that was the painting, or one of the more famous paintings that he did in the background there. Right. right. So we can go to the next one. Um Here's Samuel Morris as well. That's a photo of him. And he was a portrait painter, as I said. Uh, Marquis de Lafayette uh, was a famous man back in those days. Uh, you'd have to look him up if you want to find out what he was about. But he was a big shot back then, mm -hmm. as you can see from his painting. He's got the face of a big shot. <laughs> mm -hmm. He sounds like he was a nice guy, so I don't want to run him down. But the, um, the issue here is that he was actually in Washington, D.C., painting that portrait when he received a message by horse to come back to uh, Connecticut. <laughs> the Pony Express. Yeah. yeah, it wasn't the Pony Express. That's an actual company, but it was similar, right? And mm -hmm. it was horse, basically, horse message. Uh, probably the uh, the actual post office, really, and because uh, the Pony Express was a private entity. Mm -hmm. So in Connecticut, so when he got there, his wife competing, was... Competing with the U.S. Postal Service? Well, the U.S. Postal Service hadn't reached that area. We're talking about the Pony Express is way out west. Yeah. So it, it hadn't even reached, like the Postal Service hadn't even reached there yet. Okay, so they only had those pioneers who did it privately, I see. I see. Yeah, exactly. And um, so he found out that his wife was ill and he ran off. And went, by the time he got there, she wasn't just dead, she was buried. So people... Um, yeah, Morse, Pony Express, go on. Yeah, so while painting this painting, this famous painting of this guy, Marquis de Lafayette in Washington, he got a letter uh, using, you know, by horse. So it was probably the um, uh, U.S. Postal Service, which was by horse at that point. So it wasn't the Pony Express. That's a private entity uh, that was just dealing with the far west where the U.S. Postal Service hadn't reached. I mean, you're still dealing with the Indian Wars here, right? Mm. Uh, that's the time period we're talking about, and that wasn't that long ago. So he received a message about his wife being ill and that he should return. And then, of course, by the time he got there, she wasn't just dead. She was buried. So some people speculate that this is the moment that Morris dedicated himself to improving you know, these communication systems based on his exposure to um, oh. some of the le lectures in electromagnetism. Because it wasn't like, like we, if we go back to last episode, it was 1818 or 1814 when the first um, telegraph in Europe was actually being presented to the, the Navy in, in London. Um, but technology had not improved to the point where it could be useful over long distances mm -hmm. in, uh, in a sense. Uh, well, actually, it was dismissed at that time as being irrelevant and useless. <clears throat> that was the famous quote from the Admiral. And, um, <clears throat> pardon me, he, uh, you know, so it took some, basically some entrepreneurial spirit, let's say, to get it off the ground. Because in Europe, as you can imagine, uh, infrastructure, um, <laughs> government, social stratification prevented a lot of things from actually reaching uh, commercialization. And 
here in America, of course, it was a wide open playing field at that time. That's why it was such a, a appealing place for a lot of people. So somebody like him could take the bull by the horns and actually make it happen. So Morris's telegraph invention was a, obviously an immediate success because the telegraph was much more quickly embraced, let's say. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, there were 20,000 miles of telegraph wire in the United States by 1866. So things happened quickly. Yeah. Next slide. So that's Morris as an older man. And, of course, he's got all the medals at that point because he actually won a legal battle. <laughs> this is kind of the interesting story is that he, despite the fact that he obtained the patents that he screwed the other guy for, um, most of the governments and private companies that were using them refused to pay him the royalties that they owed him. So he took uh, them to court for a long period of time and ended up in a landmark case called um, O'Reilly and Morse versus Morris in the Supreme Court of the United States. And he was upheld as you know having the claims to these patents. So he won? And after – yeah, he won. It's like one of the rare cases. But, of course, he had already screwed other people. Right. Yeah. And he had financial backers, too. Plus, he knew a lot of famous people and he was himself fairly wealthy Mm. uh, to begin with. But he sunk. He he risked a lot of his fortune because he wasn't super wealthy. Um, He made money on the back of his painting. um, So it wasn't like he was born into money, not like in the in the European sense. But in America, he had enough money to pull off a a legal. But why did he get all these medals done if the state hated him? Oh, you know how politics goes. You know, once you win a legal court battle, everybody's got to play nice with you and you get paid and then you get money and essentially yeah. you got all the royalties. You got back paid for all the past royalties and future royalties and now he's a famous guy and he has the backing of the U.S. Supreme Court and obviously uh, this is much later in his life. So yeah, okay. you know, by then he was being he was being uh, dripped with accolades. Yeah. Sort of the way things go, you know, if you can win the legal battle. You become part of the club. Mm. Yeah. So. Next. He had the first, yeah, we had the first patent on the single wire battery powered system, which is an important thing. And then, of course, he also invented Morse code, which was the most efficient at the time uh, for sending these, these uh, information. I know, I know SOS, but that's as far as I know. Right. Do you know SOS? No, I don't know how to do or use Morse code. In fact, it was phased out. I think we learn it in school. I think that's why, actually. It's it's three short and three long, three times. Okay. Well, it's funny because his system was actually phased out by the time Tesla came along. but um, And that was because the technology had advanced. So it was kind of a more, you know, the kind of uh, typewriters they use in courts. Yeah, or the the type the the court recorder uh, uses this very useful typewriter, which is a shorthand. That's actually the next system that was in, introduced uh, into the telegraph system to replace Morse. So, so the, the telegraph was mm-hmm. replaced by mm-mm, mm-mm. Morse code. Oh, the Morse code within the telegraph mm-hmm. was replaced by another system. Yep. What was the other system? Uh, you know, I don't know. It's a shorthand that's basically used in the courts right now. It's actually the same shorthand that was used um, by Dostoevsky to write The Gambler in time uh, to get it to Moscow so that he wouldn't lose the rights to all of his writings. That's another story that's very interesting. Okay. So the next, uh, what, what eventually kills the telegraph is, of course, the telephone, right? 
Yeah, it really didn't kill it. It's just the telephone is actually just an advancement of the rudimentary telegraph technology. An addition, yeah. Of course, it's um, the exact same technology. It's just an advancement of the uh, core components. And nothing, nothing happened uh, there until Telefax. That's right. Or Telex, or whatever you call it. Yeah. Well, when they became wireless, that's when the telegraph system really died. Yeah. The original telegraph system was just improved, improved, improved right up to pretty much the 80s, mm. uh, the 1980s for phone systems, telephone systems, wire-based telephone systems. Mm. And it wasn't until the cellular phone came in that the telegraph, the core component of a wire with information passing along that wire, coded information, whether it's by hand or by some other method um, was actually phased out. Mm. So the reason I did this slide is just to demonstrate the importance of the telegraph uh, for its, because it was commercialized and so widely uh, embraced worldwide, electrical engineering sort of stumbled into new discoveries by virtue of them needing to figure out how to make things work. Because most people who use a telegraph system and even put it up didn't really know how it worked. It just worked. <laughs> mm. That was the funny thing, right? So by virtue of its commercialization, um, you know, the many scientific discoveries came about, including Thomson's Law of Squares, Maxwell's Equations, Tolaric Currents, Magnetic Solar Wind, Electromagnetic Waves, Longitudinal Waves, which are scalar waves, which is a completely different kind of, of wave. It's not a up and down sign. It's a wave that passes along uh, a straight line. It's kind of hard to describe, actually. You can almost need some physical uh, example, but there's really no time delay between them. That's sort of where the weird part that Tesla gets into, where electricity exists in all places at the same time, and he can affect action at a distance with zero time delay, in fact, beyond the speed of light, which is something that people deny in the orthodox world, but he did actually play with longitudinal waves. And the funny thing is they contradict themselves. If you go to the orthodox definition of longitudinal waves, it tells you that this wave produces a phenomenon where action occurs at a distance much faster than the speed of light because there is no distance to travel. The wave has no distance to travel. It's not on a sign signal. It's not an up and down signal. Mm. It's a straight line. Mm. So the effect occurs at the distance right at the exact same time as the, um, the causational uh, effect occurs at the point of origin. Well, that's a scalar wave. That's what, they, that's what they say is so controversial in the longitudinal, at the exact same time as denying its existence, and then at the exact same time as describing it in the uh, orthodox record. So <laughs> there's a lot of contradictions in academia, and that's one of them. Here's something important. Uh, I, I'm going to read what you have to say here because this is super important. Simultaneously, the telegraph empowered a small faction of 19th century moneylenders to exercise advanced knowledge over important outcomes of U.S. Civil War battles and other geopolitical events to expand and privatize national debt and thus seize control of national monetary systems, the policies, taxation, spending, legislation, and military actions throughout the 20th century. Who, what, where, when, why. These ultra-elite factions of the electric age took shape beginning in the middle 19th century and formed the primary opposition to Tesla's vision while seizing exclusive control 
of the exotic scientific and technological breakthroughs that established their breakaway civilization. Yeah. Very important point. I think so. I mean, this is the schism that, that I see uh, from a technological point of view. I use that word specifically because we have some historical understanding of what that means in respect to religion, for instance. Yeah. Um, you know, the schism between Orthodox uh, Russian and Orthodox um, you know, Roman Catholic uh, religion was a breakaway, is a schism, psychological schism. Well, here we have the same thing. Happens all the time. Look, look at, look at, for example, Shia Islam, Sunni Islam. Look at, look at the Jewish history of the Jewish religion. That's like a million different sects fighting. <laughs> I mean, up until uh, the last, I guess, hundred years. Now it's a consolidation, but it used to be like probably the most split of uh, religion <laughs> of them all. Yeah. It's it's in a new nature. Businesses undergo this, uh, friendships, you name it, even families. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And technological paradigms as well. Yeah. So in this case, this is what I believe and I see through the evidence uh, taking place. This is the turning point. Right. It's really a result of the telegraph uh, system that empowered a new type of financial player, let's say. Um, new job of conning and scamming and skimming. Yeah, I'm going to get into that in the next. Yeah, that's that's in the next um, uh, hundred slides that we'll do for the next uh, okay. series. I get into the Rothschilds. <laughs> um, no, no, no. Usually trouble. <laughs> It'll be interesting. Yeah, but that's exactly what's coming next because I've been dying to get to that. Jesus. Yeah. So let's do this in a three-parter, because mm. then we have two parts. Yeah, I think that you're right. This is a three-parter. Okay. So now we've taken part one and part two. Uh -huh. We can then end part two. Mm -hmm. And then we have one more part for... Um, for the telegraph. Uh, the, the, the hundred first slides, right? Yeah. For the final... Uh, you know what? How far are we in the slides now? Uh, I believe we're halfway. But uh, that's a good uh, uh, excuse to take a break. Another break. Sure, sure. Oh, okay, good. Yeah, no, it's great. I'm glad. <laughs> My throat's sore. So thanks for the session. Yeah, it was good. It was. Okay, then we have it for part one and part two. Let's hold your own and sure, hook sure, up sure. again after the break. Okay. So then uh, we'll return soon with part three of this episode. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, okay, okay. All of our files are free and will remain free. If you like the show, you can show support by donating $1 to help with expenses. Just use the paper link on our webpage. Thanks.